You are now tuned into the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for conversations on hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audience. Today's guest is none other than Dan Charnas. If you're an avid reader of the genre, you're probably familiar with his 2010 publication titled The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip Hop. In addition to The Big Payback, though, Charnas has been one of the pioneering voices in hip hop journalism. He worked for The Source in the early infancy stages of the magazine and later became an A&R for Rick Rubin's Deaf American Venture in the 1990s in which he helped shape the career of artists like Sir Mix-a-Lot, Chena McSell, and Quest the Mad Lad. Additionally, he's written for the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Chicago Tribune, Complex, Village Voice, Spin, and many more. In 2016, Charnas co-created the VH1 movie The Breaks, which was later adapted into a television series under the same name. Charnas now teaches at NYU in Columbia and is working on a new book on the life of Jay Dilla titled Dilla Time. So this podcast speaks on his 2010 book, The Big Payback. Recently, the book saw its 10-year anniversary, and it's honestly one of the best pieces of hip-hop literature I've gotten a chance to read. We talk a bit about the upcoming work on Dilla as well. However, for those that read The Big Payback, I think this conversation will serve as a nice kind of behind-the-scenes look at the creation process. That said, enjoy the conversation, and please welcome Dan Charnas. Just to kind of start things off, and I know, I, again, I said this at the beginning of the call, but thank you so much, man, for taking the time to speak to me here today. I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Very much welcome. Very, very much welcome. I'm looking forward to it myself. Thank you. Yeah. So first off, man, congratulations on the on the 10-year anniversary of the, pig, uh, the big payback. I, I'm sure you end up getting this a lot, but it's honestly, it's one of the best hip-hop histories that has been written. And on behalf of those that have read it, I just want to say thank you once again uh, for for the text. It's, a, it's an important piece of work, and I think it needs to be written. And yeah, congratulations on the 10 years and the success that it's had so far. Thank you very much. Well, you know, when you when you're writing this kind of thing and you're sitting alone in a library, you know, uh hours and nights on end, it's it's hard to imagine this moment, right? You know, yeah. 10 years later, people having read it, people liking it. So, yeah, man. I know I I certainly never get tired of hearing that the book resonates with folks. Yeah, 100%. So I, I wanted to start by by asking about, I guess, the journey that led up to writing this book. So you've been involved in the industry over a number of years and have written on hip-hop in various forms, but but why take on this project mm-hmm. initially? Like, I'm writing a book myself, and it's it's in no way an easy task. What made you decide to take on this effort um, and this task, considering you had other ventures in your life? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean... You know, I think it was in one sense a way to process what I had been through, right? Uh, it was around uh, in the year like 2004 when I really began to conceive of this idea, you know, a business history of hip hop as a, as a book. Uh, and I, I, I had spent you know, the last decade, um, more than like 15 years in the music business, specifically in the hip hop business. And, you know, I originally got into it to be a promoter and producer, you know, an A&R, uh, to, to, to help hip hop attain everything that it could. And to, and part of that attainment is not just commercial, but creative, you know, yeah. Which is why I was attracted to certain artists I was attracted to, like Kerry Chandler and uh and and T 
Casino XL, like Quest the Mad Lad, just really super creative, different, um, sometimes political, sometimes explicitly political, sometimes implicitly so. Um, and in many ways, even though I was, I don't know, in some ways very much, I had broad experiences in the music business and I did, you know, work obviously with Sir Mix a lot and had some hits in that regard. I did not look back on my career and feel like it was successful. I didn't feel like I had contributed personally anything uh, of worth. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that like, you know, Quest the Mad Lad would, might disagree with that because obviously in signing him, he, he had a career and, you know, I don't, I don't mean to yeah. denigrate like the people around me. I just felt like I hadn't made a contribution. I really hadn't found my place. And I wondered even at that point, was it worth it? Like was, did hip hop turn out to be this great thing that, you know, many of us thought it would be, you know, back in the early days when I was writing for the source and working in the mail of profile records, like this, could this change American history? Could this create, um, like, you know, that, that multiracial meritocracy? Um, that, you know, a few of us wanted to see. Um, and I guess, you know, because I felt some kind of way about my own legacy, uh, I knew that there were things that I did that did make me feel like I was good at. Like, I didn't feel like I was good at A&R, but I felt like I was a good writer and I hadn't written in a while. And so I started to think about how do I take what all of this was and turn it into a narrative. And I think the last ingredient of that of that was seeing Jeff Chang do it with Can't Stop, Won't Stop in the cultural sense. So his was a cultural history. He called it a history of the hip hop generation. Yeah. And, you know for better or for worse, it was missing certain pieces that related directly to actually how this music got made and popularized, which was the fascinating, that didn't necessarily fascinate Jeff, but it fascinated me. It's like, oh, yeah, here's a story that I can tell. And I remember I had this uh, old idea for a magazine article called, what did I call it? Last Night a DJ Saved My Business. It was about, you know, the sort of white, young white record entrepreneurs from the outer boroughs who all started disco companies in the early 1980s when disco was crashing. Yeah. And so, you know, like rap fell into their laps and saved their asses. And like, well, that's just one part of the story. What about the very beginnings of this business? What about the first entrepreneurs? Who was the first person to make money doing this kind of thing. Who was the first person to open up a business that catered to this audience? You know, that's the story of Sal Abatello, who was the first, in, first person to really think that they could make records doing this. And it wasn't just Sylvia Robinson, it was, you know, other folks. Paul, Paul, uh, oh God, Paul, why am I blanking him having a senior moment as an author? Paul, uh, Whitley, Winley, Winley. Um, who were the first journalists to write about this stuff? Who was the first person to have a broad vision of this culture to have five Freddy, right? Um, you know, what was the first 
record company by and for hip hop fans that really lasted. That's Def Jam. And then on and on and on. You know, who all it's basically a catalog of the first in the business that set the template for everything else. Yeah, fair enough. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, early in the book you end up So I, that's why. That's that's kinda why I did it. Yeah. Early in the book you end up claiming that your your motto writing the book was everybody gets to be human. Um and I think that that sentiment is important when we look at your writing, um, because your your characters, which are real people in, in every instance, are written almost novel-like. Now, I've done interviews with artists and people involved in the business, and I've attempted to write their stories, but it's incredibly hard to write nonfiction, I guess, in this way. I wanted to ask, when you were constructing this and, and writing this, how much liberty is, is taken when constructing a narrative like this? It feels almost impossible that this level of description was gathered just from primary sources and interviews. Um, but the way that you end up building it makes it inc like incredibly engaging. I think it, I, I think it's important that it was structured this way because people actually give a fuck about business of hip hop, which maybe on the surface level, it doesn't necessarily scream interesting or engaging or, um, yeah, intriguing, but it, but it is. And I think it needed this kind of, this novel like narrative in order to, to, to make that the case. Um, but when doing so, at least from my experience, I found that to be an incredibly difficult process. How much liberty was actually taken when you're, when you're doing, uh, taking it from the interview to the, to the page? Um, zero. Um, you, you have to root everything. I mean, as a journalist, right? You sure. know, you have to root everything in reporting. And I was lucky enough to have, mentors mid-career who kind of showed me the way this book would not have been possible without uh my professors at the columbia journalism school where i got my master's in 2000 2007 sorry, my master's. um but you know kim nauer you know showing me um how to report a beat. You know, I mean, I've been reporting, you know, I've been a music journalist for decades before that, but yeah. I'd never received that kind of formal training. And then Sam Friedman um, had a class called book writing and I crafted the very first chapters and the proposal for this book in that class. Wow. And Sam Friedman has this sort of famous lecture about reporting from the outside and reporting from the inside. And I, as I recall, what he meant by that was, um, how do you, <clears throat> how do you do research and reporting to set up the milieu of a place? You know, if you're going to be reporting about a protest that happens in a building somewhere, you know, go to the building, look at it. What is it? What, what does the curb look like? What do the walls look like? What's your mise en scene, you know, and then reporting from the inside, reporting from behind your character's eyes, talking to them. What did you do? What did you feel? What did you smell? What did you think? What happened next? All of the stuff in the big payback is from that. And if I didn't speak to the person themselves, uh, you know, luckily if they were characters in there, I had enough source material that had been gathered from other reporting um, done previous to the big payback that, I felt I could construct a narrative that was that was true um, to the person's feelings, to their motivations, to the scene, um, and so that's that's how I was able to do it. And that's and you're right; it's not easy. Uh, but 
it is, I think it's much more pleasurable and ultimately much more fruitful to write and read about history as a succession of real stories and then a meta story and synthesize all those things together in a story than a freaking magazine article that's 400 pages in length. I hate that shit. Yeah. I hate quotes from people in quotes like, you know, uh, that was a really rough time, so-and-so said. Like, no, I want to be in the rough time with them. I don't want a quote from them about that was a really rough time. Um, and that's just the way that I decided to write. Yeah, I love the effort in terms of going to the locations and, and capturing those details and, and getting those details. And as you say, kind of being in that story and, and living that story to some degree, even if it's from the outside, um, to to try to insert yourself into there in order to, yeah, capture these vivid details in a way that's not expressed explicitly in the interview itself. And when, when Keith Nathalie told me the story of him going, being bused to a school in a black neighborhood in San Francisco, um, and that that was a formative experience for him, I went to the school. You know, it's 30 years later, 40 years later, something like that. But I wanted to see if the number one, if the building was still there, what did it look like? Yeah. Um, anything, right? That, that's gonna inform the writing. And you were living in New York at this period of time as well, right? While you're writing the book. Cause like I wanted to ask. Yeah, I was. Okay, because, yeah, I wanted to ask, like, for those that, that have read the book, there's a clear focus on the United States. So I think, and I think it makes sense. Like, if you want to end up writing yeah. a story where people latch onto and relate to, then it's important to talk about stories that people have kind of a broad knowledge of. And additionally, America has clearly kind of dominated the American or the hip hop market since its inception. Um, but I wanted to ask why this focus was, mm -hmm. was made. Was it just kind of where you were at? Um, because there is some attention to global markets. There's a chapter on UMTV raps, uh, and you kind of talk about the British connection because it's relevant there, but it always feels tied to the story happening in America. Um, why the American lens? Well, I mean, number one, you have to go to the origin. Um, you know, you can't talk about the blues and do, uh, you know, have sort of equal or anywhere near focus on Japan. Sure. Um, even though the blues has gone to Japan, where it came from was the Mississippi Delta. So, and I was very, very conscious, again, of not doing a survey. In other words, a lot of hip hop uh, books have been structured almost geographically. Here's the scene in New York. Here's the scene in Los Angeles. Here's the scene in Houston. Oh, we can't forget Atlanta. What about Chicago? Like, that's it. I did not want to do that. That's not how a story is written. That is um, equanimity, 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 sorry, uh, for its own sake. Yeah. Um, and I did not want to do that. Uh, I, what I was trying to write about were the important firsts and breakthroughs that created this business. And for the most part, all of them happened in America. I wasn't so concerned with how uh, global it got, or rather everything that happened globally came forth from something that happened in one of these stories. I think maybe if I had, 
wanted to write a thousand page book, maybe I could have <laughs> talked about Funk and Klein. You know, I always wanted to talk about Dave Klein, Funk and Klein and his forays. You know, he was one of the first people to really advocate for uh, rap acts globally because he was a tour manager globally. So he went to Europe and he took the Jungle Brothers and De La Soul over to Europe for the first time. And he was all about, there was this um, group called Zimbabwe Legit that he was really into. Um, but those stories in some ways for me were dead ends because it's not like then, okay, Zimbabwe started churning out, you know, uh, things that had global impact. Sure. Right? Yeah. So it was really about who were the characters, who were the innovators that created these, um, you know, these firsts. And, yeah. you know, as you said, in one case, yeah, you know what? The innovation did happen in London because Sophie Bramley created the Yo Show um, in London and you, at Young TV Europe. And I was not going to... Uh, write about the birth of MTV Raps without going to Europe first. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I, um, yeah, and as you're reading the text as well, there's always, I, I guess as you say, there's, there's almost no dead ends, right? So every chapter, every character that's introduced, they're relevant at some later point in the book. So if you end up reading um, the, the early chapter, you end up getting uh, information on Russell Simmons or uh, Russell Simmons' character is introduced in the book. But throughout the, throughout the text, his actions are relevant for, for later sections and later chapters. It, it does feel like this kind of building narrative that's been formed. And by the end when you're reading the last chapters of the book, you you have this kind of foundational background to, to lie on. It's not just, here's another story that's interesting. It's, here's a continuation of the story that's already been happening. And it feels grounded and, and kind of linear in that way. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, it's purposeful. Yeah. And uh, it takes a lot of work. You have to... You know, I'm, I'm working on a book on Jay Dilla right now, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla. And it's just, you know, I'm having flashbacks of that process. You know, if you interview enough people, if you read enough around a subject, you start to see connections where people may have not connected things before. Sure. And people, you know, you, you get to see who's important, right? Who's important later on? You know, why... Why, why am I talking about this guy, Brian Cross, who just goes to take pictures of Slum Village, you know, uh, and the far side and, and then later Jay Dilla? You know, why is the photographer important? Because he's not just a photographer, right? He later on, he becomes, um, a filmmaker and a friend and a, and, and somebody who helps to take the vision uh, you know, of the music of this person and put it in a completely different context, yeah. you know, the context of orchestral music. That's huge. And, um, and, and so, you know, the reason we have so many pictures of Jay Dilla and the one, iconic ones that we refer to is because Brian Cross took them. And the reason that we have this orchestral version of Dilla is because Brian Cross made that happen. So the characters through the reporting will reveal why, why they are important yeah that's why freddie was one of those like oh dude you're everywhere like 
you were important then, you're important now, and I don't think people understand how how you're linked to all these things. And those are your those are your through people. I mean, one of my great uh you know, sort of bittersweet, not even sweet, just bitter uh things about this book is obviously Russell Simmons is the the super meta through line in all of this. Yeah. And then of course through all of this there was that other life that he led um that was pretty much well hidden from many of us who were close to him, you know, that life of violence towards women. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that ends up being the most interesting kind of element of the book, right? So uh, I think Fat Five Freddy is a, is a perfect example because if you're a fan of hip hop and you read about hip hop, you end up reading about uh, different, kind of elements of his career right you read about yo mtv raps you'll read about um the the blondie mention um early on right you you hear about these kind of sporadic events but to, to see how they tie together and how the connections are made i think that ends up being the most interesting kind of part at least for for myself and i think for other people that are already vaguely familiar with a lot of these topics right because i don't think anything in the book was completely new to me and i don't think it's completely new to most people that are going to pick up a copy but it's how the how the story is told right. in that narrative and how it's how everything kind of ties together i think that ends up being the most captivating element of the text oh well thank you for saying it yeah. i mean and that's why we write yeah um i think that a lot of people th- you know listen when you're writing a book like this you're going to run into some folks who are like you know i don't i don't want to be interviewed because i'm going to write my own book <laughs> You know, yes. people do not understand what it takes mm-hmm. to write and write well. And I'm not saying I'm the greatest writer in the world. Uh, you know, um, I think what I do well is synthesis. It's hard to do that, right? Um, but I just, I happen to have a brain that works that way. Sure. You know, oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. this person comes around here and this person goes in here and I can plug them in here and ooh, that's how we make a story. Yeah. You uh, you make an argument in the book that that this story is an important part of of hip hop, not just in terms of marketing and promoting hip hop culture, but you you make the argument that these things are a part of hip hop culture. You actually write in the opening that you believe marketing should be like hip hop's elusive fifth element. Why do you think this story, I guess, is important for those right. just interested in hip hop on a surface level? Because I think a lot of people are interested in hip hop, but they're tied to artist biographies. They're tied to the the music and the art, and they'll they'll memorize oh. Snoop Dogg released these these albums in this order, and oh, there was a demo released of this tape, or what have you. But the business end of things doesn't often it often doesn't feel necessary to to understand hip hop as a whole. Um, but the book seems to make the argument that it is. Um, I just kind of want to ask well, why. Well, because it's true. I don't think that you can understand. It's not like Run DMC, like. You know, one of the the sort of the old school, and when I say old school, I mean really old school, like the old school narratives about Run DMC is like, oh, you know, then Run DMC got big and commercial and they ruined everything. <laughs> like, you know, Run DMC didn't just happen. It's not like Run and Joe put on some pork pie hats and some tracksuits and suddenly start, started selling bajillions of records. I mean, they're there was like, you know, near failures and bankruptcies as a part of that whole tale. It didn't just happen. And one of the reasons it happens is that somebody invested in it, yeah. right? Somebody fought for them. 
who you wouldn't think of as fighting for Run DMC. You know, some, you know, white Jewish guy who, you know, doesn't really necessarily have a relationship with rap culture at all, but saw in Run DMC something special and and big and liked them and admired them and fought for them in his own way, right? Um, and that the business is filled with that. I mean, one of the things, I guess, that prompted me was you know, in 2005 when, you know, I'd moved back to New York and uh, Hot 97 was going through a really, um, Hot 97 was the, you know, the hip hop station in the big hip hop station in New York, or had become the big hip hop station. Uh, because I remembered, of course, a time when Hot 97 wouldn't play any rap. Um, they were anti rap, just like a lot of the other stations in New York. And, um, there was a big protest because there had just been a tsunami in Asia and some idiot on the morning show created something called the tsunami song that was super racist towards Asians and people were really up in arms and they rightly blamed hot 97 and its parent company Emmis for this, you know, this problem. And but somehow that that got conflated. I remember one of the protesters, I'm not going to say their name because they're pretty famous, but that protester was like, you know, companies like, and it's just glom on to hip hop, you know, so they can make money. Like, and I remembered being at Power 106 at Emmis when Emmis did not think they were dragged kicking and screaming into hip hop, right? It, this was not, Hip hop was not like, oh, let's just glom onto it and make money. I mean, people almost had to be convinced that you could make money in yeah. hip hop. And why was it important to convince them? Because there was no market, right? You know, people are are so happy for the success of De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest and uh, you know, any of these sort of mid nineties, Cypress Hill, we love them, but, but radio sucks. Like, dude, if radio hadn't played this stuff, if MTV hadn't played this stuff, you wouldn't know who they are. Yeah. So yeah, the business played a huge role in that and that it wasn't just some, some form of co-optation along strict racial lines it was, uh, it was uh, in many ways a generational fight in which young uh black folks were allied with young white people and asians and latinos in sort of breaking open this older you know generation yeah. uh and fighting them for uh, for market space now once things become mainstream then there's a whole other battle that takes place um but you know i teach students at nyu uh new york university and it's it's hard for them to conceive of a time when hip-hop was ever on the on the margin uh and that hip-hop wasn't a place to oh yeah you can make money doing that you know um and so i just wanted to tell that story i just wanted to give people the history so that they would know how hard people fought for this thing. And then it didn't just 
happen, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I agree with you. I I do think it's an important story, and I do think it's a part of a part of the hip hop story as a whole. I think to play devil's advocate, I think what a lot of people that are I don't know, you label them whatever you want or whatever they want to be labeled, but let's say like hip hop purists, um, I think there's this hesitation to to accept the commercialization of hip-hop in any sort of way right that idea of hip-hop it started out in the park we used to do it out in the dark right like um this this idea that it was this grassroots community kind of endeavor and it was it originated out of the pockets of commercialization and it should remain that way to some degree um i think that's the the sentiment that I think people people have when they almost dismiss the commercialization of it, or if they're not going to dismiss it, they almost attribute all the negatives of hip hop to it. Right? Um, this is a this is a bad story that we're that we're telling. Um, it's it's nothing good came from this. Um, they may claim to, to like Cypress Hill or, or the Beastie Boys or what have you, but the it wasn't worth the the sacrifices that came from it. Um, I guess is, I, I think is the idea. And I, I see that to some degree, like I, I, I resonate with some of those ideas, but at the same time, I do think it's an important, important part of it. And it, regardless of, of what should have happened, it, it, it did happen. Um, and that's, that's, it's ingrained in what hip hop has become. So therefore it's a part of hip hop in that way. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I don't know who's specifically making those arguments. I think it sounds very similar to the one that I told you about, you know, when I was at that protest, like, just this sort of know-nothing attitude, uh, like, oh, yeah, we love Tribe Call Quest, but we hate that, like, who, who do you think funded Tribe Call Quest? Who do you think made that happen, right? You know, uh, you, you hate commercial hip-hop. And you, you, you just are about hip hop as sort of like this, this street culture. And yet every single person in that street culture would have killed for an opportunity like this. So it does to me, it just feels disingenuous when I hear those arguments. And it's very, very hard for me to take them seriously, especially now having written this book partially in response to them. Um, you know, this idea also, and this is not exclusive to hip hop, but it is sort of endemic in our, our arts culture because we do not have an arts culture that is supported by the public at all. And it is, it is completely in the realm of capitalism. This idea that, uh, record company people are shady. Yeah. Right. Two tip himself. 4,080. Yeah. Um, and of course the irony. Right, the irony of of Tribe Called Quest situation is it wasn't the record company that screwed them. It was actually the middlemen that they themselves enrolled with, you know, that got in between them and the record company that siphoned off half of the cash that they received for their advances and things like that. Um, you know, Wendy Day in in the book, you know, said that herself when she started the Rap Coalition to get rappers out of bad deals. You know, more often than not, it's the middlemen, not the corporations, who are the mercenaries in this and who do not and and don't bring value in doing so. Yeah. Right? You have people who really, really love this business and have fought for it at every level. 
um, from artist to executive. And then you also have in equal amount mercenary artists and executives. So artists don't have a premium on purity. Yeah. That's what I mean by everybody gets to be human. Just because you're an artist doesn't mean you're a good person. Um, just because you're good at business or good at your art uh, doesn't mean that you um, are an ethical person. Yep. Uh, and just because you do business doesn't mean you're not ethical. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, you're not an you asshole. Know I mean? yeah. So I, I just feel like, uh, so I wanted people just to meet these folks instead of it being cliche. All of our writing is a battle against cliche. Uh, you know, even today, you know, it's one of the reasons that music journalism is just, uh, a shell is that people will write things like, well, the media, the industry, like, who the hell are you talking about? You're the media. Yeah. You're the industry. Who, who, who is doing these horrible things? Name them. And if you can't name them, shut up, right? Then you haven't done your work. That's what I'm saying. Do the work. Fair enough. Um, there's plenty of kind of interesting facets and stories that are told within the book, and I, obviously I can't get to all of them. But one of the kind of stories that stood out to me, um, probably one of the one of the most, it was one of my favorite parts of the book, was was the whole uh, early on the story of Sylvia Robinson, Joe Robinson, and Sugar Hill Records, and the creation of Rapper's Delight, and that whole kind of story. And you've heard this time and time again, but mm. there was something that kind of stood out to me here. Um, yeah. That was the success of, of Rapper's Delight, and I never really thought about this before, before reading the book, but there really wasn't any predecessor for the record in in order to seem familiar to the audience, right? Experimental records generally don't do very well, but Rapper's right. Delight is the exception. Um, it does extremely well, and it's really kind of seen as the first. You, you may be able to have a, a couple records here or there that, that might have predated it, um, but it's not... It, it, to the masses, this was the first record that they heard that would have identified with hip-hop, um, and it did extremely well, despite it being a rather experimental record. Um, why do you think that Rapper's Delight did this well? Because it seems that right from the very beginning, hip-hop was almost prime for the masses. It seemed that there's something mm -hmm. innate about hip-hop, or the sound of hip-hop, or maybe just the sound of rap Rapper's Delight, but... the there's something about hip hop that that speaks to the masses in kind of a fundamental way. It feels like, at least to me. Yeah. Well, I also, I mean, of course, the the the, the thing about Rapper's Delight is it was half experimental and half pop because it was recorded over the most popular, one of the most popular pop songs of that summer. So it was Sheik's Good Times, but with some experimental stuff happening on top of it. Yeah. So it's the perfect vehicle for that experimentation. Um, you know, uh, but also as much as people slag Sylvia Robinson and, you know, say, oh man, those guys in, in, in Sugar Hill Gang, you know, they weren't real rappers. They didn't come from anywhere. Like, how brilliant is Wonder Mike's first verse? How brilliant is it, right? First of all, he uses the famous ad lib that then becomes the name of the entire genre. Then he says, what you hear is not a test, right? 
which is the typical when we were all watching TV in the 70s and 80s, you know, this is not a test. You know, so he's saying you are about to hear something experimental, right? He's explaining to you what you're about to hear. I'm rapping to the beat, right? And me, the groove, and my friends are going to try to move your feet, right? Then he introduces himself. Another brilliant thing. I am Wonder Mike, and I'd like to say hello. And who's going to be the audience for all this shit, right? The black, the brown, the red, and the the purple, and yellow, right? Uh, So, to me, what's more brilliant in terms of the songwriting than that? It's, it's, It's also perfectly... And, you know, I wish, I wish, I, that is actually one question I'd really like to ask him, you know, as a lyricist, like, how the hell did you think of that? That was brilliant. Imagine if it wasn't that. Yeah, there's this DIY element in in hip-hop that I think most often ends up getting associated with hip-hop's kind of underground communities. So let it be Mystic Journeyman and Project Blow to the Chopped and Screwed kind of mixtape movement that happened in the South. That said, what was surprising to me when reading this text was it seems that this same mentality was shared across hip-hop's kind of elite. Um, people like Sylvia Robinson, Rick Rubin, uh, Steve Plotnicki, um, they seem to share the same sort of mentality in, to, in terms of like a DIY, do-it-yourself mentality, but simply had more resources to call on. Was that a realization that you ended up coming across yourself when going through this? Because uh, I, I'm... I mostly study underground hip-hop communities, and I kind of get tethered to this idea of DIY, but to see it practiced in this way on such a kind of a high-end level and not really this kind of grassroots level is really, really interesting to me. Well, I mean, look, uh, there, as far as like hip-hop culture, that was completely DIY. Um Whenever something starts to get recorded, then you have varying levels of complexity. Uh, Sylvia Robinson, that was, that was a very, a key person to have make one of these very first recordings because she was an incredible producer and she had facilities, right? Um, Rick Rubin didn't necessarily have them, but Rick Rubin also was a fan of hardcore. And that was where the term DIY came from, yeah. right? The zines and the clubs and the flyers and, uh, people making, you know, seven inch records and selling them, you know, by hand. That was a huge part of the hardcore thing. And there was a lot of alliance between hardcore and hip hop in, um, early 1980s New York. So it was nothing for Rick to think about running a business out of his dorm and put, you know, putting up 12 inches and things like that. And all and the meta story of DIY is when nobody wanted to fuck hip hop. Nobody, major labels didn't want to sign it. Radio stations didn't want to play it. So you have to make your own records if you want to make records. And if the radio stations don't want to play them, you have to start your own radio shows on community stations like they did at WHBI. Uh, you have a rent time, you know? Um, I love the story and, that's told you know, in the... Obviously, um, s- sorry. I, I love the story in the book that's told where um, 
the dude was a fan of like billboard uh, successes and whatnot so he ended up writing down like all the the names of, of these records and then would when he owned a record store i think it was the same dude but when he owned the record store he would end up writing down the names of all the the records that the kids were coming in for and looking for these breaks um and then ended up making the break compilations so those early break compilations were started because of that i thought it was just such an ingenious way of of, of right. kind of stumbling on that idea um i i know these break compilations exist um but I, I had no idea the origins of it, right? I think that's kind of a prime example. But yeah, there's there's so many different stories of, of this same sort of mentality uh, displayed throughout the book. Yeah, but you know, even like later on, right, with Power and Beware, yep. with uh, Dame Dash and, and Rockaware. Yep. I mean, people don't think of it that way, but Rockaware was a DIY. true company i mean obviously they had resources they had people you know they had people in the rag trade rag trade garment trade that they could talk to um but still man you know there's no guarantee of success and the whole reason that rock aware exists is that, is that existing brands did not want to mess with jay and and those people and that is the ethos of of hip-hop that's why i say you know the fifth element of hip-hop which is you know it's just a, it's just a label. It's just a title. But what what I'm trying to say when I say that is just that it is integral to the culture. Yeah. The hustle is integral to the culture, a particular kind of hustle, and that is to be uh, applauded uh, and and valued as much as being able to rock a mic. Because we wouldn't know about any of this stuff. You and I would not be sitting here talking about this stuff today had it not been for Corey Robbins, Steve Plotnicky, um, Lior Cohen, Keith Naftali, Sophie Bramley, Fab Five Freddy, yeah. right? People who, you know, like, you know, are the most unlikely folks. They may not have incredible facility with, uh, Black culture, they may not know the difference between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and don't care. You know, some of them do, some don't. But the fact of the matter is they did the work uh, for whatever their motivations. They did the work to, to make this thing happen so that everybody could eat. And eating is a big part of it, too. People want to act like, you know, it's not important to eat. Not important to, to to create situations where people can make a yeah. living off of doing what they're doing, um, and it is important, and so important that it's a lyrical upset. It's one of the prime <laughs> lyrical obsessions of hip hop. Yeah, fair enough. Make money, make money. Oh yeah, the culture, the culture. Like you know what? Just please, please. You know, <laughs> it's it's it. That's to me. I was just you know. There's that, uh... and I don't. It's funny, I haven't really thought like this in a while. Uh, just talking to you about the book, and obviously being 10 years old, brings up all of these emotions, like, you know, frustrations, like, oh my God, you know, how could you not see this? Yeah. Right? For me. There's that uh, lyric, I think it's from Plug One, De La Soul, um, off of that first serve album that dropped mm-hmm. a few years ago, where he says, I do it for the love. Yeah, the love of money. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a factor. It can't. It cannot be a. It, it can't not be a factor. Yeah, but also, you should. You you should be paid yeah. for what you do well. 
There's no shame in that. I agree. Um, the book ends up ending with this cliff note on the election of Barack Obama and it kind of suggesting that Obama is really the first hip hop president. But Obama's presidency aside, do you think hip hop has changed America in any fundamental way? Well, that, of course, is, you know, at the end of sort of 10 years, even not even ten, like even very quickly after the big payback made its way out of the world. Uh, I began to feel like my own attitudes toward culture and its power to change the rest of society were overblown. And I think the moment for me happened when um, it wasn't Tamir Rice. It was, it was, you know, I think it was, um, Oh man, hold on. I'm having a senior moment here. Um, Trayvon. Yeah. You know what it was? It was when Trayvon Martin was shot. Gotcha. It was when Trayvon Martin was shot and I was about to appear on a panel at South by Southwest with, with Steve Stout, who had just put out his book, The Tanning of America. It's very optimistic, you know, businessman's take on culture's ability to bring everybody together. And I felt instinctively that we were in, I didn't know we were heading into a darker time, you know. Uh, I still was generally optimistic, but I just, I began to feel like, you know what, culture, and I think also because I was working at a website, like a, you know, editing websites and sort of seeing what was happening to media business yeah. as well. I just began to think, you know what, hip hop culture for a lot of us in the 80s and 90s was our life and it colored everything we did. It, for white kids like me, you know, you know, even though I had obviously I I was already an African American studies major before hip hop really became, you know, huge. But I know that like it public enemy, people listen to public enemy, the folks who had never picked up the autobi autobiography of Malcolm X before. You know, so they're they're reading that. Like it is it is changing some people. It's hugely meaningful. But then there's a whole other segment of the population that treats culture like it's a bag of Doritos. You eat it and you throw it yeah. away. And I started to realize that just because Kendrick is political um, doesn't mean that every Kendrick fan, white or black or Latino or Asian, is going to metabolize that in the same way. And so I started to feel that way, like, okay, you know, the great work that's being done to change the society is being done by these kids in the street protesting in Ferguson. Um, and then more recently, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, like the people who are really changing society aren't the rappers, they aren't the MCs, aren't the producers, isn't JV with his great companies, right? Um, it is, it is folks in the street demanding change. And that ultimately is where these battles have to be fought. Sure. And then the other part of it, of course, is I used Obama as a through line in the book, right? It was Alexander Hamilton and Obama, by the way, well before Hamilton, well before the play Hamilton. Um, 
So uh, there was, you know, this sort of through line with Obama that is very optimistic, right? Um, but I forgot the other character who is even more of a fixture in hip hop than Obama ever was. And that was Donald Trump. Doesn't even get a mention in the book. Yeah, fair enough. And frankly, more rappers interacted with Trump, wanted to be Trump, talked about Trump than ever for Barack Obama. So that's, and, and that would help people understand the mercenary part of hip hop that won, right? The misogynist part of hip hop that won. And when you think about it also, who's the person who blurred Russell Simmons book? Who got the lead blurb for his, his, his book, Life and Death? Donald Trump. So for me, that was, you know, in looking back in 10 years with hindsight, that was the blind spot of the book. Um, it's optimism. And, you know, uh, if it becomes a documentary project at some point, I think that would, I would, I would probably add that layer and that nuance to it. Um, you know, as, as we continue the story. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, the connection with Trump. I can name offhand uh, quite a few different examples of just praise and association that hip-hop had with Donald Trump before his presidency, and then kind of the 180 mm-hmm. that ended up happening after his presidency. Um, it's, yeah, it's an amazing story. There there, there must be a book somewhere in there in order to write. Um, I want to ask here, uh, kind of the last question on the on the big payback. But do you think releasing a book like the big payback restricts access to to the business down the road? I ask this because I know your own history is it's kind of part of this story, and part of me thinks that deciding to write this means accepting that you're going to end up in, inevitably burning some bridges. Was that a was that something that you contemplated before writing and before dedicating yourself to this project? And um, I guess on a more kind of interesting note, um, do you think it's happened? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, number one, I didn't think about this as I didn't have any conceit that I wanted to be a part of the music business ever again. So it wasn't really a concern for me in that That's way. True. It actually created more bridges than it bur- than it burned. I mean, I don't I don't think it burned really any bridges for me. There was no, the only people who complained about the big payback were the people who got left out for whatever reason, um, either by by complete accident or you know just not because they're just not you know what I consider to be a vital part of the narrative. Um, but that was ve- I mean very very uncommon, um, and for the most part, I think people respected the book and people in the industry respected the book. There was no like gotchas in here for the most part for folks. Um, uh, yeah. So no, I, that was never a concern for me. And I, this book wasn't a mercenary endeavor for me. Um, this was a, a labor of like, this is, you know, and that's the problem with writing books is that if they become too much a labor of love, then, you know, you, you put yourself in some unfair positions um, in terms of, you know, how much you're willing to work without pay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, um, 
I wanted to cap this conversation off if you have a few more moments just to talk about the Jay Dilla book that's coming out. It's not out yet, and therefore I, I haven't had a chance to, yeah. to read it because of that. But for those listening at home and for and for me, what was really the goal of, of this Jay Dilla book? Because we've gotten coverage before, but what kind of separates um, – and we've got amazing coverage before. Like I'm thinking of like the Crate Diggers documentary on Jay Dilla, or just the numerous interviews and whatnot that have been done. What's how is this book going to be different than the story that's already been told on on JD? Well, first of all, there's only one book that has ever been written about Jay Dilla, uh, and that is Jordan Ferguson. If you're your you're, you're fellow countryman, <laughs> uh, Jordan Ferguson's great book on donuts. Um, and it's a, it's a small book. It contains a great bit of his story. Uh, and I think Jordan did an amazing job, um, on his discourse about that album. I am telling a different story. I'm not telling the story about an album. Uh, I am telling the story of why this person is one of the most important people in popular music period in the last 100 years. Um, and that is because Jay Dilla essentially invented a third way of relating to musical time and is essentially the only person from electronic music to change the way that musicians think about time and think about processing rhythm on their instruments. Um, and also changed electronic music as well and the way we think about rhythm. And the fact is that nobody's talking about that. At least nobody's talking about it in ways that are accurate, in ways that make musical sense, in ways that are have clear language. Um, people have sort of danced around this idea. They say, oh, you know, he's a he's got that great feeling, that great swing, that great bounce, whatever. You know, he doesn't quantize stuff like that. Um, and that's just all wrong. It's like trying to understand a three, describe a three dimensional object using only the language of two dimensions. That is what, that is what describing Jay Dilla's, uh, music as swing or as non-quantized. That's what it's like to me. Sure. And at a certain point, it became like nails on a chalkboard, especially since I was teaching a class on Dilla. And so finally, it was another one of these moments like that, you know, that time at the protest, right, that I told you about for the big payback in 2005. It's like, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> I have to write this damn thing. Um, so that's what I've done. So it's called Dilla Time, uh, how a hip hop producer reinvented rhythm and changed the way musicians play. I, I spoke to Kathy Ayendeli recently, semi-recently anyways, within the last few months, and she just ended up writing her God Save the Queens book, um, and she's writing a biopic on Aaliyah, which should be released mm-hmm. at some point this year, I believe. Um, she had, in, in my conversation anyway, she ended up kind of revealing that she had to decide what story that she wanted to tell with the Aaliyah book, and ultimately she said that her story kind of focuses as much on Aaliyah's life as it does on her legacy and what her life meant to others. Um, so where where does the Dilla book kind of lie in this conversation? Is it the the story of Slum Village and Frank and Dank and the Tribe Called Quest, or or is it a story of what Dilla kind of meant for hip hop after the fact? The answer is yes. It's all of that. 
man, I, I'm really excited to, to read the Dilla book. Um, I, I'm a Jay Dilla fan myself. Um, I, I don't want to, like, I know there's, like, real, like, diehard Jay Dilla fans, and, and maybe I'm not quite in that category, but I've always found his life really interesting, and I've loved a lot of the music that he's put out. Um, and I, I'm a sucker for, for just stories and being able to, to kind of just learn more about uh, different characters in, in hip-hop. Um, I And I think you're... One, I think you're an excellent writer. I think the big payback ends up proving that. Um, but I think if you have some sort of connection to this story, I, I think you're the right person to, to tell it in a lot of ways. Um, I, I'm excited for this this book. I'd love to have you back on when, when it does end up coming out and when I get a chance to read it. Well, dude, I mean, that's incredibly sweet of you. Um, you know, uh, again, writing can be a very lonely thing, so it's always nice to hear when people resonate with it. As you can tell, I write because I'm passionate about the stuff. You know, I am not, I am not a, um, I'm not shy about my opinions. And I think, yeah, the, maybe the Dilla book will ruffle some feathers too, because I think that I'm going to be talking about him in ways that, um, you know, I say early on in the book, this is not a product of the Church of Dilla. Um, you know, he is a, a complicated dude, uh, but he's also a genius, um, and a genius in ways that people don't even really understand that he's a genius. Um, like we, we, um, <clears throat> intuitively understand it, but we don't always have the language for it. Like, uh, uh, Timothy Ann Burnside knew that Dilla's MPC belonged in the Smithsonian next to George Clinton's mothership and Chuck Berry's Cadillac, yeah. right? But she didn't necessarily have the language for why. What I'm trying to do with the book is give people the language. Here's the music. Here's the science behind it. Here's what it means. And then, yeah, his, his life story, which I've tried to do as best I can. You know, um, it's been about 150 interviews over the course of the last three years. Wow, I I didn't expect the the interview kind of the size or body of, of interviews that you have collected to be that large for for this project. I would have expected that for the big payback, and I've I've done hundreds of interviews. I'm writing a book on the Canadian hip hop scene um, and the history of Canadian hip hop, and wow. um, in doing so, I've I, I think I have my interview folder up here, but I, I think it's like 580 or so. Um, but um, but it's a it's a story Ooh. that needs a lot of interviews. Right? So you know, you, you need to to do that hard work and that process in order to to gather this information because it's not really readily available elsewhere but i would think that you'd almost be able to write the dilla story well especially if they're not on planet earth yeah yeah fair enough yeah yeah and that's that's the that's troubling with a lot of aspects of what i write about right like if i want to write about like cool kurt was a was a dj in saskatoon a very pioneering and important um important dj in the community and opened up a lot of doors for other artists but he also passed away a number of years ago as of now um and it, there's numerous characters like that within the book but just being able to tell their story and having to to um yeah. Having to build a narrative that doesn't exist anywhere, right? There's there's no real unless you interview people and you talk to people about their kind of early experiences being introduced to hip hop in Saskatoon. Those are the times that you end up getting the name Cool Kurt mentioned. He, he doesn't have any editorials written about him. There's no interviews yeah. from his life. There, there's nothing that exists. Um, but so you have to end up doing the the hard work. And yeah. it was interviewing his his family members, his cousins, yep. that kind of thing, his nephews, uh, people that heard his show, his partner. 
partner is his DJ partner, um, radio show kind of personnel and, and people that were like managing uh, the the radio station itself that he was a part of. Um, and it's trying to build that story that way. But it's in Dilla's case, it almost seems easier, right? There's there's so much, there's an abundance of content on Dilla. There's an abundance of interviews and anyone that ever had an association with Dilla, when they're interviewed today, they're going to be asked about Dilla, right? Um, it's it, it seems like it should be easier. I, I'm frankly, I'm surprised that you ended up doing that that much kind of groundwork, um, and I'm I'm really excited for it now. Because the 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 seeming easier is deceptive. Sure. Because if you re, if you begin to read widely on Dilla, you understand that people are actually contradicting each other. A lot of these common narratives, especially around donuts, you know. Like, you know, the idea that he created it in the hospital, uh, Boss 404. <laughs> People would bring him samples. Right? Just like. Yeah, I've heard you know, those stories. Just not. You know, I understand. I understand why people feel that way. But, and, and there's a lot of disinfo out there. So, and I'm not saying I'm looking for disinfo or looking to discredit anybody. I'm just saying, listen, if you interview one person, you get one story. If you interview three people or five people about the same thing, you start to understand what's real and what's not. That's fair. Well, I first heard about the book just through our email correspondence. When, you, when is your book coming out? Um, I put in the Research Ethics Board here at the university because it's, it's resourced through our university at Cape Breton University here in Nova Scotia. Um, I put in for June of 2022, um, and that's going to – that I, I could always extend it, but in my mind, that's still been my, my due date for when the research portion has to be done and when I – when I, frankly, I want to get the writing done by that that point as well. Uh, it's been a few years in the process, and um, a lot of it's written. A lot of it, a lot of the interviews are already completed, of course, but uh, there's still a lot to do. I, uh, to answer well, your question, I, I don't know. I strongly recommend you writing. Yeah, no, but I strongly recommend you start writing ASAP because it's the writing that actually tells you what reporting uh, still needs to be done. Yeah, I've written... It's only in knowing what you don't have. I've written a couple of the major chapters, um, so I'm I'm in that process Great. anyhow. But um, yeah, still a lot of work needs to be done on the project. Um, Great. Well, I would love to read it when you're done. 100. I can definitely make sure that happens. Um, but yeah, I first heard about the Dilla project when you ended up uh, telling me through email, and ever since you ended up telling me, it's been high on my list of of just books that I'm really excited for to, to read. Um, and I'll definitely be pre-ordering a copy whenever the pre-order link is available for it. Um, but again, I, I'd love to have you back on whenever that book does come out so we can kind of talk about it and break it down. But uh, for this conversation, thank you. It's been a blast. Um, the Big Payback is one of my favorite books on hip-hop, period. I said that at the beginning of the call, but it really is. And from everyone that I've spoken to that has read it, um, they kind of equally praise the project. Uh, I think it's a really important book, and I'm glad to have you on the podcast uh, to talk about it. So thank you. Oh, man. Thank you. You're, you're why I wrote it. That's, that's great you're to hear. You're why I wrote it. So thank you. <laughs>